0: we are back. Let's talk about um, politics, which always makes us sad, and technology, which unfortunately also often makes us sad. So let us descend into this veil of tears with this item. Russian lawmakers are now openly boasting that their country helped elect Donald Trump. On Russian television a couple weeks back, Vyacheslav Nikonov, who is a Duma member, was discussing waning U.S. influence around the world and said... The U.S. intelligence, quote, missed it when Russian intelligence stole the presidency of the United States, end quote. Earlier this month, Nikita Isev, leader of the far-right New Russia Movement, said on Russian state television that Moscow should release its compromising material on Trump in retaliation for the U.S. closing Russian diplomatic compounds. When asked whether the Kremlin had such information on the U.S. president, Iosev said, of course we have it. Well, we don't know what Russia has or doesn't have about President Trump. The last week, the Wall Street Journal reported that Facebook had given the special counsel, looking into the issue of the connection between Russia and the 2016 election, detailed records about Russian ad purchases during the campaign, data that Facebook had balked at providing to Congress, which suggested to the magazine that a search warrant may have been involved. Commenting on that in the Washington Post, Christina Emba said, as if we needed more evidence that Facebook influenced the election. Last week, the social media giant admitted that it had sold more than $100,000 in ads between 2015 and 2016 to, quote, a Kremlin-linked troll farm seeking to influence U.S. voters, unquote. The ads, which Facebook refused to release, contained divisive messages on hot-button topics, from LGBT matters to race issues to immigration. Writing in the New York Times... Scott Shane said Russia's election meddling didn't end there. An investigation by the Times revealed that the Kremlin deployed a legion of Russian-controlled imposters to target Democrat Hillary Clinton. These imposters set up sophisticated fake Facebook accounts pretending to be ordinary Americans with names like Melvin Reddick and Catherine Fulton and used those accounts to post thousands of anti-Clinton attacks which Russian bots and real people then passed along on Facebook and Twitter. Scott Shane said these efforts represent an unprecedented foreign intervention in American democracy. Writing in Slate.com, Fred Kaplan said Russia's interference in the 2016 election was an outrageous act of information warfare, quote-unquote. We have to get better at defending ourselves, he said, starting by forcing Facebook and Twitter to demand real human IDs so that a Russian troll can't pretend to be a housewife in Ohio. And taking it one step further, and we would note in Radio Parallax, it's about time, a man named Will Bunch writing in Philly.com, has said it's also time to ask some hard questions. Did Kremlin trolls tip the election to Trump? Why did some Democrats in North Carolina and other swing states find that when they went to the polls, they couldn't vote because poll records were mysteriously altered? In Wisconsin, don't forget, Trump won by only 22,000 votes. Voted Mr. Bunch, these questions demand answers, and yet the Trump administration seems determined to look the other way. Meanwhile, weighing in on this, Mark Zuckerberg says he's shocked Shocked to learn that gambling is going on here. He's posted a long multi-point rebuttal to allegations, except that he seems to be, well, saying things that don't seem to jibe with what others are saying. Zuckerberg is saying he's looked into it, and he can't find any evidence here of, uh, you know, people setting up fake accounts, and boy, he's going to do what he can to cooperate with investigators into this. Josh Marshall, writing in TalkingPointsMemo.com, says that Facebook appears to be headed for a bruising encounter with lawmakers over the Russian investigations. Marshall notes that the social network has become a key focus of special counsel Robert Mueller's probe, and of course recently revealed that fake accounts from Russia spend $100,000 on ads. He adds that to the consternation of Congress, the company has been less than forthcoming about how Facebook vetted those ads. Lawmakers increasingly appear eager to send a message that the social network is not God, not a government, and not the law. It's just a website. The Washington Post said, except it's much more than that. Facebook and other tech giants have become the most powerful gatekeepers the world has ever known. Filtering our news, powering our social interactions, and remaking our markets. Their currency is a bottomless collection of data which they exploit to deepen their dominance. And their ambitions are mind-bogglingly grand. They want to wake us up in the morning, have their AI software guide us through our days, and never quite leave our side. Policymakers have long treated Silicon Valley as a, quote, force beyond control, unquote. And we too, as citizens, have enjoyed these companies' free products and next-day delivery with only a nagging sense that we may be surrendering something important. Such blitheness can no longer be sustained. And indeed... He would agree on Radio Parallax, it cannot. Writing in Bloomberg.com, Eric Newcomer said, Big tech is falling out of political favor for years. Silicon Valley giants like Google, Facebook, and Amazon have enjoyed a hands-off approach in Washington. Lawmakers have praised them as engines of economic growth and innovation and allowed them to operate largely unfettered. But amid growing concerns over the company's size and influence, the tides are turning, with Congress floating new proposals on transparency and privacy that could royal the industry. To which we would add, it's about time. Politico.com notes that the criticisms are coming in from both left and right. Democrats have condemned Facebook for spreading fake news, while conservatives have accused Google of silencing right-leaning viewpoints. The attention is creating strange bedfellows. Both Steve Bannon... President Trump's former chief strategist and Bernie Sanders have called for Google and Facebook to be regulated like public utilities. In a town where liberals and conservatives agree on very little, everyone seems to agree the tech industry's power over American life has grown too fast and unchecked. To which we say, here, here, and at this point would like to jump to The Economist, which has a lengthy review of a book titled World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech by Franklin Foer. F-O-E-R Said the magazine Public scrutiny eventually stalks the kings of capitalism Wall Street banks enjoyed decades of unfettered growth Before coming to be seen As Matt Taibbi, a journalist, described Goldman Sachs As a, quote, vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, unquote The magazine notes that today another backlash is gaining strength This time against the giant digital squids Whose tentacles are encircling both public and personal life in June, the European Commission fined Google a record-breaking 2.4 billion euros for suppressing rival comparison shopping sites. The firm is filing an appeal. The tech giants continue to snap up or shamelessly copy smaller rivals. A rising figure in the cohort of tech company critics is Franklin fowler a journalist at The Atlantic. His new book, World Without Mind, decries society's capture of by big technology companies, mainly Amazon, Facebook, and Google. His criticisms are wide-ranging, but center on the idea that they have become monopolies. Their dominance has gutted the financial health of publishers and music companies. He even charges tech firms with having bruised democracy, as they serve up information based on opaque algorithms, suggesting what people should think, and so supplant individual thought. Mr. Forer compares tech's lack of transparency to Italy, quote, where it's never entirely clear how power really operates, unquote. They note that Mr. Forer was previously the editor of The New Republic under Chris Hughes, one of Facebook's founders, by the way, who bought the well-respected but loss-making magazine in 2012. An amicable partnership soured as Mr. Hughes tried to push The New Republic to chase superficial, bite-sized stories to win cheap digital advertising. Mr. Fowler and most of the staff left in protest. His recounting of his clash between old and new media is authentic and absorbing. Fowler notes the magazine says that tech firms exert so much power that people demur from criticizing them. Fowler saw this firsthand when he became an activist against Amazon's treatment of authors and publishers. Because the online giant could influence the success of books, many lawyers and publishing executives feared speaking out. Mr. Forrest's concern about opacity is also spot on, says the magazine. For example, Facebook and Google are not bound by requirements to report sales of political advertising as traditional media firms are. Recent revelations about Russian ad buying on Facebook during America's presidential election underscore the risk of so little oversight. The Economist notes that World Without Mind joins books such as Move Fast and Break Things by Jonathan Taplin, published earlier this year, and Tim Wu's excellent The Master Switch from 2010, in arguing that regulators need to look at these world-changing companies more critically. The magazine is then a bit critical of the book, saying that readers looking for an enduring wealth research manifesto about big tech's dangers will be disappointed by the book's lazy generalizations. Four is not a business journalist or economist, and he cares little for financial and legal details. Well, maybe so, but we think he's got the big picture right. By the way, we highly praised Tim Wu's The Master Switch on this program a few months back and said we were going to do what we can to get him on the show. And by God, there's no time like the present to reanimate that effort. The economist also notes when it comes to solutions, Mr. Four was also a bit breezy. He suggests that Much as some consumers have shunned packaged unhealthy foods in favor of artisanal options, they might opt for new ways to spend time online. The economist says this optimistic solution misses a critical point. There is no local farming equivalent of a search engine or an online social network. And tech firms are pushing into new sectors, even buying up the local alternatives that Mr. Forrest suggested as solutions in his food analogy. This summer, after all, Amazon bought Whole Foods, a grocer. I want to note in a personal level that I know a lot of people that work in tech, work in Silicon Valley, and the fact that they just don't seem concerned about any of this concerns me a great deal. We don't have time today to delve into this Equifax um, disaster, but you know, when 143 million people go to some central data repository and put their addresses, credit card details, social security numbers, and that gets hacked that can't be good and while in hawaii I had a fascinating chat with um, one of my relatives who noted that um she'd gone on to facebook posted some pictures and then later tried to delete them she later encountered the same pictures and when she tried to step in to, do, to edit them further she was told that she no longer had access to them i need to flesh out some details in that uh, in that narrative but uh i'm sure she's telling me the truth and I'm sure that if you do post something on Facebook, another relative pointed out that she had taken the time to read the agreement that we have with Facebook and noted that, yeah, yeah, they, they do own what you put on there. It becomes their property. And of course, as Tim will pointed out in the Master Switch and his previous work, attention merchants, we are the product. Facebook makes money, not from us, because, after all, it's a free service, by selling data about us to corporations and presumably governments. Is there a potential for misuse here? Well, uh, we think so. And we got some bad news about uh, trying to fool the ever more ubiquitous facial recognition technology. As reported in New Scientist magazine, Amarjit Singh at the University of Cambridge and his team have trained a machine learning algorithm to locate the 14 key points on a face that our brains pay the most attention to when we look at someone. And it turns out only needs to see a fraction of these points to guess where the others are likely to show. Thus, said the magazine, you can ditch that hat and scarf. Facial recognition software can now identify you despite disguises. Yes, apparently the good people at Cambridge showed their system. 2,000 photos of people wearing hats, glasses, scarves, and fake beards hand-labeling them to indicate the locations of those key points, even if they couldn't be seen. The algorithm was given a subset of images to learn how disguised faces correspond to the same faces without a disguise. It was able to accurately identify people wearing basic disguises like a cap and scarf 69% of the time. Now, that isn't as good as systems that recognize undisguised faces, but the algorithm is better at seeing through disguises. In effect, it is able to see through your mask, Who thinks this is a good idea? Singh himself admits that the system could help identify criminals who are trying to hide their identities, but admits that authoritarian governments could also use it to identify protesters. Hello? They then quote Anil Jain at Michigan State University saying, There is always a trade-off between security and privacy which says that people in public spaces are already under constant surveillance by security cameras, so they shouldn't be too worried about every improvement in the technology. And returning to Facebook, as we, I think, have to do, uh, in this case, another article from the News and Technology section of New Scientist, in this case, the September 16th issue, article by Matt Reynolds, says the following... There's often something not quite right about humanoid robots. They're cute up to a point. But once they become a little too realistic, they start to creep us out. A foible called the Uncanny Valley. Now Facebook wants robots to climb their way out of it. Researchers at the company's AI lab have developed an expressive bot. An animation of a face controlled by an artificially intelligent algorithm. The algorithm was trained on hundreds of videos of Skype conversations so it could learn and then mimic how people adjust their expressions in response to others. In tests, it successfully passed as human-like. Nonverbal facial clues are a key part of human conversation, said Louis-Philippe Morency at Carnegie Mellon University. We use them to signal that we are listening to someone and engaging with them. To mimic this organic feature of human communication, the algorithm divided individual faces into 68 key points that it monitored throughout every Skype conversation. Eventually, it learned to produce the same nods, blinks, and small mouth movements that we involuntarily make during conversation. The bot was then able to look at a video of human speaking and choose in real time what the most appropriate facial response would be the person was laughing, for example, the bot might choose to open its mouth too or tilt its head subtly. The Facebook team, God bless them, then tested the system with panels of people who watched animations that included both the bot reacting to a human and a human reacting to a human. The volunteers judged the bot and humans to be equally natural and realistic. Facebook will present the work at the International Conference on Intelligent Robots and Systems in Vancouver later this month. Which is probably taking place now. Anybody in Vancouver listening, let us know what they're doing up there. The article by Matt Reynolds concludes by noting that robots aren't so good at mastering the subtle elements of human interactions but we we already know that humans prefer speaking with robots that mimic their own facial expression. Now Facebook is trying to take robot conversations to the next level, and at some point we'll get out of the uncanny valley and come out the other side, he said. And an incredibly idiotic but related story, we have this Robots are invading the Symphony Hall. Writing on Inc. com, Kevin Ryan said that Yumi, a two-armed robot built by the Swiss robotics company ABB, last week conducted a performance of the Luca Philharmonic Orchestra in Pisa, Italy. The 84-pound bot learns tasks by recording, then mimicking them, without any coding required. It has wrists, elbows, and shoulders, giving it movements, fluidity similar to a human being's. Reportedly, Andre Colombini taught Yumi the songs for the performance, including La Donna Immobile from Verdi's Rigoletto. It's noted that unlike its human counterpart, the robot can't respond to how the orchestra is playing. Mr. Mellon asked the question of isn't that what a conductor is supposed to be doing? Well, I always thought so. And if Facebook didn't have enough trouble, and frankly we don't think Facebook has nearly enough trouble and hope it's in for quite a bit more trouble, we have this. Facebook is scrambling to update its advertising platform after it was revealed that advertisers could use it to market directly to anti-Semites. According to Sarah Fryer, writing in Bloomberg.com, the social network temporarily disabled the ability to target users by their self-reported education, employer, or field of study last week, after investigative news site ProPublica found that some users were filling in those fields with offensive content. As a result, marketers could target their ads to Facebook users who expressed interest in categories like Jew-hater, Facebook automatically creates ad categories based on what users post about themselves, often relying on users to report abuses. This is the latest black eye for Facebook's self-service ad platform. Recently revealed, as we reported twice already, to have sold $100,000 worth of political ads to a Russian-linked troll farm during the election. And thanks to Amazon and others, Toys R Us has now filed for bankruptcy. The Wall Street Journal has reported that... uh, This is just the latest casualty of the pressures facing brick and mortar retails. The Tor Emporium, which operates 1,600 stores around the world, has 64,000 employees and plans to keep most of its locations operating as usual. Its main priority is restructuring more than $5 billion in long-term debt. Let's just say they go out of business and 64,000 people lose their jobs, at least Amazon's Jeff Bezos will be able to take up quite a bit of that slack in his own personal bank account. You know, not to sound like Karl Marx here, but, you know, something's wrong, people. And reminded by the mention of Karl Marx that uh, a friend of mine posted on Facebook (laughs) recently a quote from Marx and Engels, which I I found rather obtuse. It has something to do with Marx and Engels' prediction about the role of of marriage and the wife and being a slave to the husband. Uh, I don't know. Not being either a student or a fan of Marxist doctrine, all I could think of to reply was to just say, well, I understand that Marx and Engels thought that Ruth, that Ruth should stick to pitching. Which I think is a heck of a joke if you're an American. But he was posting in Australia, so I'm not sure they got it down under. I had a chat recently with a friend I hadn't talked to in, I don't know, something like 15 years. And she was mentioning how a, a relative of hers was getting the house set up with Bluetooth in every room. With some, one of those assistants, Alexa or Siri, I'm not sure which one of it was, set up so that no matter which room in the house this person's elderly parents were in, they could talk to this personal assistant. A trend we are not admiring. New Scientist, who else, noted in their 16th of September issue that voice assistants are now connected to everything from thermostats to smart banking. Smart banking? Sounds like dumb banking to me. Anyway, to once again go to our good friends at New Scientist, they said, did you hear that? Alexa did. Voice assistants have been hijacked using sounds above the range of human hearing. Once in, researchers were able to make phone calls, post on social media, and disconnect wireless services, among other things. The magazine notes that this is a problem because of the fact they're connected to things like internet banking. So security breaches are considered rather serious. This hack was created by Guoming Zhang and Chen Yang and their team at Zhejiang University in China. Using ultrasound, a command inaudible to us, was used to wake the assistant, giving the attacker control of the speaker, smartphone, or other device, as well as access to any connected systems. The attack works by converting the usual wake-up commands, OK Google or Hey Siri, etc., into high-pitched analogs. When a voice assistant hears these sounds, it still recognizes them as legitimate commands, even though they are imperceptible to the human ear. It isn't easy to pull off. The attacker needs to be close enough to the targeted device to hack it, although it may be possible to play the commands via a hidden speaker as they walk past. Assistants which fell for this ploy included Amazon's Alexa, Apple's Siri, Google's Now, and Microsoft's Cortana. The Chinese researchers noted that not all devices were equally easy to pull, equally easy to fool. To take control of Siri, the owner's voice had to be surreptitiously recorded for playback before being converted to ultrasound as Apple's system recognizes only the speaker. The magazine notes that to secure voice assistance in the future, ultrasound could be suppressed. They were quoting Tavish Vaidya of Georgetown University, who then added that, however, we should focus on protecting against unauthorized commands rather than limiting what assistance can do. Do you agree? We don't. Now, I'd love to round out today's discussion of how technology, which admittedly can be quite neutral, can be derailed by unscrupulous financial interests by referring to an article by Mike Hamer that was in New Scientist about what happened in London to the electric buses, which looked like they were going to be the future of London transport, public transport in the early 1900s. But um, we'll put that off to next week's show. It's a sad tale but one that we need to talk about. I don't want to end on a downer today, so um, let's talk about some research that might really help people in the future, as opposed to helping a hacker empty your bank account. And we will, yet again, go to New Scientist. In this case, it's the September 9th issue. Article by Claire Wilson. It's in the News and Technology section, but explains how blind people can, quote, unquote, see as bats do by echolocation. The article focuses on Daniel Kish, a Californian, who is so proficient in using ambient echoes to make his way around a room that he can actually uh, sketch a room after he's clicked his way around it. He can even go mountain biking along unfamiliar routes, noting that you can tell a tree from a post from a human. It is already known that this ability involves some brain areas that are normally reserved for vision in sighted people, Daniel Kish has been blind almost from birth. He thinks that he experiences a sensation as something akin to images, saying, quote, There's a real palpable experience of the image as a spatial representation. Here a wall, there a corner, and here is the presence of objects. Researchers at Durham University in the UK have used Daniel and a couple of other blind individuals who echolocate to study their sonar, as it were, and discovered that the clicks they use turn out to be highly focused sound waves emitted in a 60 degree cone as a, compared to 120 to 180 degrees for typical speech unknowingly the echo locators have worked out how to point their clicks toward the space they were sensing ranging in frequency from 2 to 4 kilohertz the clicks are higher in pitch than speech perhaps because it helps the cone of sound stay tightly focused. They're also brief, lasting only three milliseconds, which might help them overlap with other echoes. The researchers have now generated synthetic mouth clicks to use in future research, noting that they can use a computer to click at an object thousands of times and work out how to determine the shape, adding that you can't ask a person to click at something thousands of times. And at long last, Researchers at the School for Advanced Study at the University of London say we have a starting point for telling us more about what's happening and that we now need to find out exactly what kind of click is best in different situations. We know in this program some time ago that Daniel Kish runs a charity called World Access for the Blind to help people learn echolocation. Reportedly, it takes children two to four days to pick up the skill and adults one or two days longer noting that everyone has different levels of aptitude, but everyone can learn to some level of ability that is useful. We find this very encouraging for people who have a limited sight, and since a lot of people who have perhaps normal sight now may, as they age, face a loss in uh, visual acuity, this this is some good news. Well, I wasn't that happy with the final paragraph, quoting the Durham University researchers saying this, this may also lead to better sonar systems that could be used in self-driving cars. And you know what? I'm not going to touch self-driving cars today. Beep, 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 yeah. All right, that about does it for today's program. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program, like all of them, was produced by Mr. Edward McMillan, who I'm proud to report is finally back in men's clothes. Just kidding. Baby, you can drive my car. Yes, I'm going to be a star.